Well, good morning, family. It's so great to see each and every one of you this morning. If you would, go ahead and make your way back to your seats. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to Isaiah chapter 11. That's where our message is going to be coming from today. Um, But before we begin, though, we need to go to the Lord in prayer. So let me pray for us. If you would, go ahead and uh, silence your hearts, bow your heads, and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of this morning, for the breath that you have put into us. For we only rise because of what you have put into us. You created us. You put your breath into us. You loved us. You sacrificed everything for us on the cross, Father, by sending your son to die. Father, thank you for this. Thank you for the hope that you provided as a result of that. And Father, I pray for this message, that one that you would just speak through me. Father, I've never been worthy to preach up here. But the one thing I do know is that your word is always worthy to be heard. And I pray, please work through me this day. And I pray for our congregation that you would open their hearts. Holy Spirit, come fill this place. Open their hearts, open their minds. Help us to receive this message that you have for us. And we pray all this in Lord Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, today marks the beginning of the Advent season, in which we're going to temporarily take a break from our series on Daniel until after the new year. Instead, we're going to focus on Jesus' first coming, his first Advent. Now, it's important we celebrate the Advent season because it symbolizes this coming or arrival of Jesus Christ. In fact, the word Advent, that's a Latin word, and what it literally means is coming or arrival. And as we celebrate Jesus' first arrival, Advent also reminds us of something just as important, that we're awaiting Jesus' second Advent in glory when he returns. Now, there are multiple ways to celebrate this season. One such way is to use a calendar made up of 24 windows that contain scripture, story, or poems. My personal favorites are the ones with the little chocolates in them, but we won't go there. As each day passes and the windows are opened, what that really simulates is this anxiousness and the expectations that God's people had as they were waiting for the coming Messiah. In the same way, we start to feel that anxiousness as Christmas comes near. Now, another way to celebrate the Advent season, which has become our tradition here at Forest Park, is to use these five candles in this wreath. And these candles celebrate Jesus Christ being the light of the world. Just as the Apostle John states in John chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, that in him was the life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now each week, a new candle is lit in anticipation of Christmas Eve, with the last candle, called the Christ candle, being lit on Christmas Eve to represent Jesus' first advent. And through this theme of ever-increasing light penetrating the darkness, we see a picture of the gospel. And this reminds us that Advent is a significant time in the life of the church, as it's an opportunity for us to remember God's promise to send the one who would overcome sin and death forevermore. Now, to help build up our anticipation this year as we light each candle, we're going to go over the gospel message in a unique way. For you see, it doesn't take much to look at the world around you and see that it's falling apart, that it's broken. 
I'm sure you've seen lately in the news the shootings left and right. As a result, we chase after things. We're constantly looking for in this world a little bit of hope, right? Joy, a little bit of peace. And that gets extremely heightened during the holiday season. We, we chase after it, but it's like a shadow. We never can fully attain it because it seems to disappear. This Advent season, however, we're going to be reminded that while the pursuit of these qualities, hey, that's good, that's a great thing to do, you can only ever really realize hope, joy, peace, love in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul reminds us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, that these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And with this, we're going to go over Isaiah chapter 11 today and showing how our hope is only fulfilled in Christ. Next week, we're going to cover how our peace is in Christ. December 11th, we're going to cover how our joy is in Christ. And we're even going to have our missionaries from Uganda come up for about 10 minutes to give all the joy that they're sharing the gospel there in Imbara. On December 18th, we'll show how our love is rooted in Christ. And what better way to do that than with our special ceremony in which we're going to have the baptisms. Finally, on Christmas Eve, we'll hold a special service singing Christmas carols and going over the birth narrative of our Savior, Jesus. Simply stated, it's an exciting time of year, and we invite you to join us in this celebration of the Advent season as we look to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And with this, let's go ahead and dive into our message today as we see how our hope is only in Christ. And as we begin, I want to start off by asking you all a question. How many of you have put your hope into something only to see it fail time and time again? Anybody? Come on. Every hand should be up at this rate. All right. Here's, here's a good one. For instance, how many of you put your hopes into this last election cycle? Now, that may be bitter, but honestly, how many of you looked at it as if things got voted one way or another? There's our hope. The country's saved. You see, the truth is, at one point or another, we've all placed our, our trust, our hope, into leaders. We've all placed our trust or hope into something else, some type of idol. And no matter how great they've been in some respects, or how horrible they've been in others, they can never live up to the standards that have been placed upon them. Heck, just stop and think about the biblical kings for one second. Let's take David, for example. He was known in his time as the greatest king. Nobody had a heart after God like King David. And yet even he failed, right, by taking Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. How about Solomon, his son, the wisest person to ever live? He can't fail, right? But yet he took his eyes off of God and he also fell. So why do I tell you all this? Why am I bringing these points forth? I do this for two reasons, okay? First, it's going to remind us of the world that we live in and how we constantly do the same thing. We hope for something, right? And it's often misplaced. And second, because it sets the scene for our story today. Now you see, the book's author, the prophet Isaiah, he wrote this book in the, story, or in the uh, poetry and prose formats. And he did that around 740 and 686 BC. And during that time frame, it's important to note that the 12 tribes of Israel, they were falling apart. They were split. They were fractured. You see, after the reign of King Solomon, the Old Testament records how Israel split into two kingdoms. You had the 10 tribes from the north that they refused to follow Solomon's son because as great as the kingdom had become, that came at a cost. His people felt like they were being enslaved in their own country, and they didn't want to follow his son, Rehoboam. As a result, they formed the northern kingdom in Israel, 
while the remaining two tribes in the south developed the southern kingdom of Judah, their capital being Jerusalem. Isaiah, of course, he was stuck in the middle of this, and he was a prophet for the southern kingdom, where he prophesied for the four kings of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And to make matters even more interesting, the surrounding Assyrian empire that was right next door to him was expanding while Israel is going, they're falling. As such, a common theme that we see in this book is Isaiah the prophet constantly telling, constantly warning the kings of Judah, don't let the outside world pressure you. Don't look to anybody else. Continue to focus on the Lord. Time and time again, he urges them to stay faithful and to looking to and relying on the Lord for their strength, for their security. In fact, in the chapter before ours, Isaiah chapter 10, he remarks that although the Lord is following, or I'm sorry, Isaiah remarks that although the Lord is allowing Assyria to grow, he's allowing that to happen for his sovereignty, to accomplish his will. He's telling Israel, don't be afraid because at the end, I'm going to cut them down. They're being excessively brutal. I'm allowing them to use or do what I want them to do. And when I'm done with that, I will cut them down to size. Do not look to anybody else to save you. Look to me. Even, in fact, he uses this imagery of a forest. He sits there and says, Assyria is going to be like this forest that I cut down with an axe. There'll be nothing but a bunch of dead tree stumps. Unfortunately, kings of Judah, like Ahaz, they refuse to listen to these warnings of placing their faith in God. And instead, they make alliances with the surrounding countries. And that ultimately leads to their failure. And I think in understanding this, it's key to remember here that while we can point to these kings going, man, they should have relied on God. They should have known better. How often do we do the same thing? That is, how often do we put our hope in worldly things instead of placing our hope in God where it should be? And with this, we're left with a very vital question. Is there still hope for us in these failures? Let's go ahead and turn now to Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to read the first five verses. So again, if you have your uh, phones, if you have your hard copy Bibles, please open them up. It's important that you follow along. Okay. There shall come from a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide uh, disputes by what his ears hear. But with his righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So right away on the surface, Isaiah immediately points us to this dead tree stump. In fact, this stump is meant to represent the lineage of King David. It's pointing to David's father, Jesse. We now know it's dormant. There's nothing there. And what you see Isaiah is doing here is he's showing how all these kings that Israel keeps putting their hope, their faith into, to include David himself, they've failed. They've fallen in sinful ways and not always looking to God. And hence why this tree representing David has no life. There's nothing left in it. Yet what's important to see here is what does the text show us that the Lord is doing with this lifeless stump? The Lord is bringing this stump to life by allowing a shoot to come forth from it and produce fruit. So why is that significant? 
It's significant because we see the Lord fulfilling and keeping his promises right from the get-go. You may or may not remember that back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, the Lord tells King David, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So in other words, by raising up this shoot, who is from the lineage of David, the Lord is revealing his character. He's showing how he always fulfills his promises. He always provides us with some sort of hope. But as we continue in the next verses, verses 2 through 5, we get even more of an idea of why this offshoot of Jesse provides us with hope. That is, in verse 2, we read how the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon this king. And let me ask you, who had this Holy Spirit rest upon him when he was baptized in the form of a dove? That's right, Jesus. So continuing on, we see this coming king has these ruling attributes of wisdom and understanding. He also has the practical abilities of counsel and might. And finally, we see this king has the spiritual qualities of knowledge and a fear of the Lord, which indicates an intimate relationship with God. And with this, I want you to think back to who do we know who has the most intimate relationship ever with God? Who has the best practical abilities of counsel and might and wisdom? Better yet, what king doesn't rely on his strength whatsoever, but solely on God's? The truth is, I can only think of one person who meets these qualifications, and we know there is only one, because only one is the Son of God. Only one went to the devil's territory on earth and faced temptation. Only one went to the cross, fully relying on God's wisdom and strength and one, and that person is Jesus Christ. But as if this isn't evidence enough, Isaiah continues on verse 4, helping us to understand this coming branch of Jesse. That is, he discusses how this coming king is allowed to judge the whole earth, not just a set boundary. He's not like other kings, where they only have a set kingdom. This, this king, the earth is his kingdom. And if you think back, only one person has the authority and is worthy to judge the whole earth, and that is the one who suffered on the cross for you and I. He also discusses how this king will strike the whole earth simply with his words. And when he says this, I want you to think back to the one whom the winds and waves obey simply by the command of his voice, Jesus Christ. Now, as Isaiah continues, he makes an observation about verse 5, as he mentions how this king's righteousness and faithfulness will be like a belt. It'll be like a sash around his waist. And let me ask you, where is a belt and a sash normally worn? It's the center of your body. So think about that for a second. What we see that Isaiah is doing here is he's saying that this king's sinner, it is his faithfulness. It is his righteousness. And so as Isaiah is wrapping up these verses, he's telling us and he's telling his ailing country to place their hope in a future king. Stop looking to the kings of the past. They could never measure up. They could never fulfill. No, you need to look to this future king that's coming, this perfect king that never fails to do God's will in accomplishing righteousness. And it's through this text we're reminded that God has already been faithful in sending that perfect king who judges and rules righteously, who always accomplishes God's will just as he did when he went to the cross, and who is full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ. And so with this, if you're taking notes, the first main point that our text is showing us is place your hope in Jesus, who is the perfect king. Again, if you're taking notes, the first thing I want you to do and to remember is to place your hope in Jesus who is the perfect king. Now, as we turn to cover verses 6 through 10, 
You see a shift from who this coming king is to what his kingdom is going to look like. And before we start, though, I want you to think back to Genesis before the fall of mankind. And I want you to ask yourself the following question, because I think it helps set the tone. In the first two chapters of Genesis, did we see death or destruction? No, absolutely not. There was creation, beauty, order. After the fall, though, in chapter 3, what did we see? Death and destruction enter. Humanity rebels against God, and things spiral further and further out of control. And so with that in mind, let's go back to our text and read verses 6 through 10. So if you have your Bibles again, please open them up and follow along. Here we go, verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Their nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the winged child shall play his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Okay, now that we've read those verses, let me ask you again. Does that kingdom sound like the one that's before the fall or after? Look how amazing this kingdom is. There's no longer death. There's no longer destruction. Heck, we don't even see predators among us. Think about it. How many of you are comfortable with letting your children go out and play with some vipers and cobras? Uh, Let's try this one. How many of you are comfortable with letting them just go to a dangerous part of a neighborhood? Here, however, we see that kids are playing with vipers. What kind of place is this? Now, let me flip this and ask, have you ever seen a lion eat straw instead of meat? Look at that. And to help put this into perspective of how great this king must be, I want you to think back to the greatest world leaders that you can possibly think of throughout all time. Seriously, think to yourselves for a second. If you think about worldly leaders, who's some of the best that you can think of? Now, for some of you, maybe... I don't know, George Washington came to mind, or Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Maybe it was Churchill or Ronald Reagan. Still yet, maybe you went the route of Gandhi or Mother Teresa. Now, whether they're all great world leaders in some respects or another, I want to ask you the following question. Which of these leaders impacted not only some of humanity, not some, but all of humanity throughout all time and all ages? Better yet, which leaders actually changed the created order to bring such a peace in which children could be safely playing with cobras, vipers? Which ones can, can change it to where a lion will eat straw instead of meat? See, this is evidence that this king must be so divine in having full authority over the whole earth and created order. Now, we already know from our study of verses 1 through 5 that this person is none other than Jesus Christ. But interestingly enough, if you look at verse 9, Isaiah continues to show even more evidence. For example, look at the fact until up until this point, this king is constantly described in the third person. So if you look at your Bibles, you continually see how this king is third person, right? They're describing how this future king is going to be. However, the wording starts to shift in verse 9 to the first person. Do you notice that? In verse 9, the wording shifts to the first person as this king states, they shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain. 
In other words, you see the Lord directly speaking through Isaiah to describe his coming kingdom, which is ushered in through Jesus. Now, if that doesn't catch your attention to see that this coming king is of a divine nature, and further, that these scriptures scream out in pointing to Christ, the Hebrew language also continues to give us even more clues. For you see, the Hebrew language utilizes different tenses of a word. For example, we'll point to two of them. You have what's called an imperfect tense, and what that does is, is the author is describing something. He's saying, hey, I've seen the beginning, maybe I was there for it, but I don't know the end, I don't know the outcome yet. It's like I'm in the middle of the action, I'm trying to describe this to you, right? Another tense that Hebrew uses is called a perfect tense. And in that tense, the author is saying, hey, I've seen the beginning, I've seen the end, I've seen everything in between, I know the entire situation. Well, as it turns out in verse 9, when the author is talking about how the whole world will have full knowledge of the Lord, the Hebrew word translated to English to represent full, that's used in a perfect tense. In other words, the author knows the entire situation from beginning to end. He knows that the whole world will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Who can do that unless they're God? Now, the second thing that the Hebrew does in pointing us to Jesus is it utilizes a particular type of participle called a cow participle. Now, I'll give you a quiz later, and I'm sure you guys will remember that. But in verse 10, we see something unique with this participle. And let me cover what this actually does. You see, a cow participle in Hebrew means that an action is going on. It's continuous. It keeps moving. It's not a one and done. It's not saying that, hey, I kicked the ball, that's it. Rather, it's Jared continues kicking this ball for a set period of time. So in verse 10, and the reason I bring this up, if you look at verse 10 again, where we see Isaiah talking about how this coming king or this root of Jesse shall stand, and that's the key word here, stand as a signal for all people, the word translated in English to stand is the participle. So putting that together, the Hebrew language is showing us how this coming king, he continuously stands as a signal for the nations. He won't be a one-time figure that fades away, but someone who the nations will continually look to as his resting place isn't like anybody else's. Rather, it's glorious. And so to help settle that in, you remember just a few moments ago, I asked you to think back to some worldly leaders, right? Worldly kings, anybody you could think of that maybe came to mind. And if I asked you that again, let me, let me rephrase it to sit there and say, can you think of any worldly leaders or anybody that comes to mind that has a glorious resting place? Anything? You see, no matter how you slice this, no matter how great the leaders were that came to your mind, they still died. They were still buried. And let's face it, there is nothing glorious about death. However, this helps us to see that there has only ever been one person who has tasted and defeated death, and his resting place is at the right hand of the Father, Jesus Christ. And through his victory, the curse of sin and death has been broken, allowing the world to be transformed into what we see here in these verses, describing this paradise that God created before the fall. And this provides us with a hope, because we know Lord Jesus has already started this transformation, and he will finish transforming this world when he returns again. In fact, in Revelation chapter 21, verses 4 through 5, we learn that when Jesus returns, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
And so if you're taking notes, the second thing that our text is screaming out to us, the second main point I want you to get is place your hope in Jesus who transforms and makes all things new. Again, if you're taking notes, I want you to understand, place your hope in Jesus who transforms and makes all things new. Let's go ahead and turn now back in our scriptures to Isaiah chapter 11. Let's finish up this chapter reading verses 11 through 16. So please open them up and follow along if you would. Here we go. And that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They should put out their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. As we finish this up and after having read this, you may remember that when Isaiah originally wrote this, And when he was prophesying, Israel was split into two kingdoms, right? They're falling apart. They're headed downhill so fast, and they're constantly under siege by Assyria. And we learn that they're even exiled. Here, however, Isaiah provides immediate hope in these dark and trying times by pointing to how God will remain faithful in saving his people. That is, in verse 11, you see Isaiah envision a second, a greater exodus, in which Jesus is the greater Moses bringing his people back to him from all nations and even the world. In fact, the imagery that's used here to describe the furthest points imaginable in that time, in that day, was you had Egypt and Cush representing the furthest south. You had Elam and Shinar in the east, Hamath in the north, and the coastlands representing the furthest points in the west. Even in verse 12, it further explains, God's people will be gathered from the four corners of the earth. And when we transition to verse 13, Isaiah describes how during this exodus, a peace will be seen that surpasses that of even when the 12 tribes of Israel were fully united under King David, as Ephraim and Judah no longer harass each other, and so forth. Further yet, verses 14 through 15 describe how Israel's enemies will be defeated just as they were in the times of King David, but this time once and for all. With this, I want to make one point loud and clear, though, that this is written again, remember, in a poetic style. That is, these aren't meant to be seen as literal forecast of events. It's not, this isn't how it goes to where it plays out, and you go, hey, this is when it's going to take place. It was meant to be poetry. And to help clarify what I mean by this, Ephesians 6, that's a good one. You may remember the Apostle Paul tells us to put on the armor of God, right, as we fight spiritual warfare. He didn't mean literally go get some armor, a shield, and a sword and everything and go out amongst everybody. What he was saying is we need to be in prayer. We need to be in the word. And so Isaiah, he's doing the same thing here in these scriptures. He's envisioning how this new king 
This offshoot of Jesse will conquer once and for all. And this time he's going to do it through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as such, we see in the second half of verse 15 and even verse 16 that this exodus is completed as King Jesus defeats our enemies, as he leads the remnant of his people back home to him. And nothing will stop him and nothing will get in his way. And now that we've kind of finished up the text study-wise, we, we get to move on to the application, right? Because as great as this is, as great as we can point this out, as great as we see that these scriptures bleed and they ooze out in pointing us to Jesus Christ, how does that affect you? How do you apply that to your lives? And to answer this question, I think we have to recall how Israel, again, what did they do? They kept placing their hope and their trust in worldly leaders and worldly things instead of placing their hope in God And we likewise, we often do the same thing, right? We place our hope in earthly leaders and earthly things only to see how they constantly fail time and time again, what we talked about at the very beginning. And in our times of oppression, we long for someone or something special to cheer us up in providing hope, especially during the holiday seasons. But those things never seem to last, do they? Isaiah, though, he's reminding us in this chapter, however, that there's only one person that can provide us with this true hope that never fails and it always satisfies, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the beauty of this text and this message is that when Israel was at their worst, when they were divided, when they were spiraling out of control, rebelling against God himself, what did he do? He still provided them with hope. And likewise, if you and I, when things are broken and falling apart in our worlds, when things are going about as difficult as you can imagine, and maybe that's different for each one of you. Maybe it's just a dark and trying time at work. Maybe you're going through divorce. Maybe you're split from the loved ones. Uh, Maybe you're chasing after idols that lead to destruction, and you know that. You see, God still provides a message of hope to us in those situations. He provides hope in letting us see that our salvation doesn't rest on our performance and it doesn't rest on the worldly kings and leaders that can never measure up. No, it rests on King Jesus' performance and it rests on his faith and us putting our trust and faith in him. He helps us to see that when things look dark and dim just as they did for Israel, there is still hope as God is in sovereign control and making all things new for his glory. And you know, no matter how much I studied this text and I kept looking at it, I always get amazed how much God kind of smacks you and sits there and says, you're missing the main point. Something cool that he pointed out to me, and I didn't catch this before, but if you really study these scriptures, and this is why we need to be in the Word, we have to study the Word, is that you notice that it's only 16 verses, right? That's all this chapter is. But in a matter of 16 verses, did you know, depending on the version of the Bible that you have, that the words will and shall That's used 37 times in these 16 verses. That is, the text is constantly referring to what this coming king will do, such as how he will assemble the banished from Israel, or how he shall stand as a signal for the nations. And while that's an amazing fact to consider, where the Lord kind of shifted my heart to see something, is to see that the reason that we place our hope in Lord Jesus today is not because of what he will do. It's because of what he already has done. Remember when Isaiah wrote this, they were pointing to a future Messiah, a future king. We know who that king is, and we know what he's done on the cross for us. We see the Bible shows us that Jesus, he is that perfect king who always looks to do the will of the Father as he did when he went to the cross. 
Jesus is the perfect king who ruled and continues to rule with all righteousness and judgment. He's the king who's transforming and will continue to transform all of creation by his work on the cross and by his resurrection. Jesus is the one who brought us ultimate knowledge of what God is like because he himself is God. And just as important, he's the king who never fails because at his strongest, he simply speaks the words and commands and it's done. And at his weakest on the cross, he still brought us salvation. Even death couldn't hold our king back. So simply put, Jesus is the only one we place our faith in. He's the only one we place our hope in because he's not like the other human kings and worldly leaders who will fail. No, Jesus is faithful in fulfilling his promises as he already has and will continue to do so. And so really, if you get nothing out of this sermon, the biggest thing I want you to get, the biggest thing I pray you remember, and if you're taking notes, is to place your hope in Jesus, who will never fail because he has already defeated sin and death. Again, Place your hope in Jesus. He'll never fail. He can't. He's already defeated sin and death. You know, my brothers and sisters, as we conclude our message today and we turn to prepare for communion, the truth is we could go on forever talking about the hope that we have in Christ. I realize, however, that that'd be a little bit selfish of me, though, because while it's a wonderful gift to learn about this, this hope that we have. I think the bigger thing to know, and especially during this season, it's just as much a blessing to share it with somebody else. So this Christmas season, I want you to be reminded of where your true hope comes from, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to share that gift of hope, and I want you to provide all the Christmas cheer you can in sharing that throughout this Advent season together with everybody that you can. And so with this, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's thank him for this hope. Let's ask him to help us give this strength to share this message and to prepare to sit at the table. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this message of hope that we have that only comes through you, that comes through Jesus. Father, what a blessing it is that at our worst, when we rebel, when we're constantly going off to the side, you provide Jesus to us who went to the cross, who fulfilled your will, Father, I pray that you would settle this message on everybody's hearts, that you would open all of us to constantly look to you in this. Help us to grow in you. And Father, help us to share this blessing with so many others, to share your gospel. Father, it's a privilege to come before your throne. Help us to see this every day, to study your word. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we come to sit at the table for communion, I want you to really kind of reflect on this message today. If you see, in just a few minutes, when we passed out these elements, when we pass out this bread, this cup, I want you to be reminded of what this special time really means. Communion is a reminder that when things went wrong throughout the week, or that when we fail, and we do fall, our hope doesn't reside in us or our performance as our message shows today. Again, we're not like the prior kings. We will always fall. Our message of hope resides in Jesus. And that's what communion points us to, to look to Christ. It reminds us that, like our story today, we are the Israelites that we're spinning out of control. But yet, we're like that dead tree stump, right, of King David's, that no matter how faithful they tried to be, they could never make it. But yet, God still brought them to life through Jesus Christ. And the point is to always look to Christ. We didn't deserve this, and we sure as heck could never earn it. 
And yet God still made his character known in always fulfilling his promises by sending Jesus to save us. And this time reminds us as believers of this awesome privilege that we have to sit at this table as sons and daughters of the Most High King, our perfect King, because of what he has accomplished, not because of what we accomplished. It further inspires us to see what he will accomplish in always fulfilling these promises and making all things new as we await his second advent. Now, for those of you, maybe you're struggling with accepting Christ as your Savior. And we simply ask at this time, if you're going through that, that's okay. Just withhold from taking this bread and cup at this time. Use this time instead to just pray, to spend some time with the Lord. Wrestle with him. Ask him to open up your heart to place your hope in Christ. After service, I pray you'd put it on your heart that you would come talk to any of our leaders. Talk to our elders. Talk to Pastor Neil. Talk to myself. Anybody here. We would love to sit with you as you get to know Jesus even more. Let us help you on your journey as you place your hope in Christ. And so with this, I'd like to ask our leaders to come to the front as we pass out these elements. And as they do, please use this time to continue to meditate, to praise God for the hope that only comes from him and Lord Jesus. Let's go ahead and pass out these elements. Did everyone get a chance to receive and open up the elements? You know, this morning we sang, O Come Emmanuel. And what did our message show us? He did. He already did come, and he will come again. And so when we look at this, when we look at these elements of what they truly represent, we get to see that he did come, that he did lay his body on that cross for us. He did provide us with hope, a true hope. This world is not the end for us, but rather an eternity worshiping our Lord Jesus Christ awaits us. So when you look at this bread, Remember that it was Christ's body that was broken and beaten for us and bringing us true hope. So take it and eat it in remembrance of him. And likewise, when we look at this juice, that represents his blood shed on that cross for us so that we could be brought to life in him. Take it and drink it in remembrance of our Savior. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege to come to this table because of you. Because of what you've done on the cross. Father, thank you that you, you put your body to be broken and beaten and blood shed for us. And in doing so, we have a hope unlike any other. Our hope will never fade. It can never fail us because you don't fail. Father, you've already defeated our enemy. You had defeated death. You had defeated sin. In our times of trouble, help us to remember this. Help us to look to you, Father, to this true message of hope and salvation and looking to your Son and looking to our Savior, Jesus. Father, we adore you. God, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things. And all God's people said, Amen. Can we stand? Can we worship our King?